0: All right, so I have more listeners now. Um, before I recorded the last episode, most of my episodes had somewhere between 30 and 40 listeners, and like one of them had maybe 50. And then because I think because one particular listener shared it with his network and that person shared it with their network, it just sort of took off a little bit. So if I look at my views, not views, listens now, almost all the episodes have about almost 200 listens. That's pretty cool. And they're from all over the world. I have people in Germany, which surprises me, somebody in Belgium, um, still mostly in the United States as I would expect. That is where I live. So that's cool. I hope that I can continue to make an interesting show for you. I'm going to try to record a bunch of episodes in the next month or so before we have a child and things become a little bit harder. But uh, yeah, that is the plan. In this week's episode, we're going to talk to Kelly Wright who has written a re, partially written, co-written a really brilliant article on the way that linguistic discrimination and racial discrimination combine to affect people in different realms? So that's our topic this week, and I'm going to get her on the phone after this break. <laughs> So, I'm talking today to Kelly Wright, a newly minted doctoral candidate at the University of Michigan and an all-around antagonist who specializes in experimental sociolinguistics. She's going to talk to me today about her work on her co-authored article, Language and Discrimination, Generating Meaning, Perceiving Identities, and Discriminating Outcomes, which was recently published in the Annual Review of Linguistics. Kelly, thanks for coming on the show and talking to me about your work.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here.
0: So before we go into the article a little bit more, could you just tell me a little bit about what you study and what some of the research you've done and you know, some of the things that you're interested within um, experimental sociolinguistics?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I have sort of disparate research tracks. I work... In historical sociolinguistics and corpus linguistics, um, studying the development of racial ideologies over time and using machine learning and text learning to track those and the words that people use to describe certain subjects or certain events. Um, I also work on language planning, Um, so the ideologies surrounding nationalism and how that affects Um, the ways in which languages are planned on a national level. Uh, It's not something that happens very often in the American context, but it's definitely happened all over Africa and South America, Europe. So there's a lot of data, which is interesting. And most recently I've been working on dialect discrimination in the housing market. So looking at how when we don't have any other information about a person, either personal or visual um we use their voice to sort of decide who we think they are um what we think they sound like and what kind of person we think they are, are they trustworthy that kind of thing so di- discrimination broadly but probably a nicer way of saying that is meaning making broadly
0: oh, okay yeah no i wasn't sure if you were I have many. I've done a lot. Uh, yeah, I, I have many comments to make there, and if I say all of them, we will never get to the actual point. But I will point out that if my dad listens to this, and you probably won't, but he could, he would be very interested in machine learning because every time I talk about my work, he's like, "Why don't you get into AI? You should get into that AI, Justin. Why don't you get?" I'm like, "Oh my god." Um, <laughs> so. It's such a subject I could talk
1: forever about. Well, AI and speech, <laughs> sort of, um, you know, a, a speech interface with our technology.
0: Well, then he would be very interested in that. I mean, I'm interested too. Yeah. It's just like, he, you know, I'm like, Dad, I le- I'm writing this article about this. And he's like, well, Justin, what about AI? And I'm like, that's not what I said. Siri <laughs> um, anyway.
1: was trained on prison phone calls. Siri was trained on prison
0: phone calls. It's fine. Okay. Just, that's that I is, won't. I won't pay more. <laughs> I've a- I have actually more experience than I would like with prison phone calls, so, I mean, not, not from, from, from making them to prisons, so. Um, yeah. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the article, which was published in was it, October, um, or it says October 15th. I'm looking at it, so I don't know why I said it, like I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, and how would you summarize the article? To a general audience like the whole thing
1: yeah okay so <clears throat> the annual review of linguistics th- this this article is perhaps atypical of what is published in this review normally it's something about a particular topic or approach um, something that has you know been established has staying power in the field and someone is chosen To head up a project of summarizing where we are. Sometimes it is truly an annual review, so people talk about something that's happened in the last year. We went a little broader in our time depth for this paper because this is a subject that has not been covered uh, to any sort of significant extent. Um, So, what this paper is doing is talking about the two fundamental types of discrimination that are involved in sort of listening and then existing in the world. So the first is just separating two different sounds. The fact that I know what the difference is between a pa and a buh, right, a P and a B, that's discrimination. I'm able to separate one sound from another and put them into distinct classes. What we look at, the second type of discrimination is what we think of when we think of oppression, right? Uh, Traditional discrimination, the way that anyone, not just a linguist, talks about it. And the way that that intersects with the voice is the sort of middle part of this paper. We walk through the literature on sociolinguistic perception, and so I realize it's kind of a large set of words, but the idea is you hear some variation, Like, I say can't instead of can't. And those different features, that a instead of eh, right, is uh, telling you something about who I am. Maybe it's about where I'm from or how old I am. And what sociolinguistic perception tells us, what the literature we summarize in this paper tells us, is that those links that you make between the way someone sounds and who you think that person is, are very robust, and both are always activated. So a listener is always making an evaluation of the speaker and the speaker's language use. So it's not just that I'm hearing you, and I know that it sounds different. I'm not simply discriminating. I'm also sort of adding in all these assumptions about the kind of person you are when I hear you speaking. So that's the first half of the paper. (laughs) The second half of the paper says, okay, great. We have tons of evidence that this exists, but almost all of it is laboratory evidence. So we've tracked this phenomenon through social institutions, um, housing and law and healthcare and employment, looking at... What, it, what sociolinguistic perception looks like and what discrimination looks like, in all of these contexts we find ourselves existing and living and speaking and listening in our regular lives. And then we tell linguists to get it together and help us fight linguistic injustice.
0: Um, so, so would you say... So that's the article. <laughs> yeah, I'll, 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 we will get into that. Um, so would you say that the way, because I think, you know, discrimination... The denotation is both of those things right um you know the literal definition is both um discriminating between and discriminating against right you know what i'm saying um, uh-huh. and i think that the connotation if you use the word discrimination people f- don't think about the you know n- the not oppressive meaning of it right to discriminate between two sounds is to be able to tell the difference, but to discriminate against this group of people or this person because of the membership in a group is really what... Uh, pe- I'm just sort of putting your, your, your words into a nutshell here, but basically people are doing both things and not always realizing they're doing it, and we're only talking about one part of that most of the time when we use the word. Does that make sense? Correct. Is that basically what... Yeah. All right. Um, so what were some of the most um I don't know if interesting is the right word most surprising things that you all found in doing this research?
1: Well, yeah, so they are just because these sort of phenomenon are terrible and built on suffering, <laughs> I think doesn't make them uninteresting. I would say perhaps the most shocking. Maybe a bit of evidence that I brought together for this paper um, is in the section on employment. So we think a lot. We think a lot about the ways in which standard language or just sounding professional, right? Um, it, it sort of help us in a profession or in in a, in a situation in our careers when we're trying to talk to someone at the bank or a police officer. But um, the statistics that we share from Davila et al. talk about how people who have a lower English language proficiency make up the highest percentage of people who suffer work fatalities. So this correlation is very robust, and it's, it's very surprising that, I mean, it, it makes sense once you learn about it, but the idea that I'm not a great speaker, and because of that, I get shunted out of most industries to begin with. The only industries that are left for me are, you know, it, it's grunt work, it's dangerous, it's... It's around noxious fumes. It's taking on a ton of risk. It's working a ton of extra hours, um, being separated from my family. So not only am I pushed into those jobs by necessity, but also I'm more likely to die. Um, So I I never would have thought – I never would have made this connection on my own. So I'm really glad that I came across that research because I think that it really illustrates the – what, what we sort of lose with, without encouraging linguistic justice in our industry?
0: I, um, when you say that, I, th- I you know I think of things I've experienced because you know I come into this this sort of field originally as a, a language teacher myself, and I think of my students. Um, pretty much not always, but pretty much always taught adults. So I obviously had students who came to class and they were in those positions professionally um, and I think of how many of them were in these programs and the the most that the programs could ever promise them was that well you know you'll 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 get a little bit more money as a house cleaner <laughs> you know like you, you have a higher chance of getting a better house cleaning job right and it's not just physically dangerous to do certain types of work, but also, like, you don't get any protection as a worker. You know, so if something happens to you, that that's it. <laughs> so you just keep doing it and you keep quiet. So, um, and not only do you just keep quiet because you're desperate, but also you may not be able to say anything such that people understand what you're saying. So Correct. It, 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 it's one of those things uh, with a lot of this stuff. It's stuff that, as soon as you say it, it sort of locks into place, but it still needs to be said, you know? So, yeah. Sorry, you going to say something?
1: Oh, no, it's just, yeah, it's like not even being able to understand the risk of the job that you agree to. Like, people not giving you materials in your language or any sort of form of communication that is accessible to you, they could just speak to you. They could show you images of, like, you will crawl in this hole. You might get smashed or burn and die, right? Like, like that's information. I want people to have any person at any time, citizen or not. I want them to have that information before they crawl in a hole where they might get smashed and burned to death. Like, it's, you know, it seems like this is a reasonable thing, and yet it is not required or happening anywhere.
0: How? Well, I mean, when you think about it, because they're not given the ability to speak for themselves right, so right. people have to speak people have, and there are people out there like us who are trying to help speak for them but it would be better if they were able to speak for themselves or if you go back to you know we all know like floris and rosa uh, the uh, pe- the white listener doesn't really want to hear what they have to say <laughs> so right anyway. right go so you talk you mentioned the employment section right there's four there's well there's four big sections and then there's the 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 last section of the paper the last um, big section is about these different institutional um, types of discrimination and you talk about education law employment housing and health care so you mentioned a little bit about employment is there anything else you wanted to mention about employment before we start talking about some of the other sections? Is there anything else that stood out to you? I mean, I could just read the paper out loud, but that wouldn't be very interesting <laughs> since I have
1: I really, I guess one, one smaller point to make is maybe that I think a lot of people understand that English is the language of the global marketplace, but I don't think that that knowledge really translates into what that means on the ground, what it means for the wider world outside of America, England, and Australia, where the standard Englishes are spoken. Um, I, The English language is a commodity in its own right. It is absolutely traded. It absolutely has power. Um in our connected system. Uh, the section which anyone can read for themselves is you know details some, several examples, but I think it sort of it drives a lot of some of these other things that we'll talk about later. Um, the, all of these institutions are interconnected, but I think this, the, the global prominence of English is something that kind of gives these practices staying power.
0: all right well the order in the article you probably know better than i do i'm flipping to it um the first one that's mentioned is education that that well we i mean we just talked about the commodity of english as a language so that certainly comes into play when we talk about education and discrimination there so why don't we talk a little bit about the way that linguistic discrimination manifests itself in education although this is kind of what I talk about in every episode of the show but <laughs> it makes sense to start there since that's where you start in the article so
1: sure so i think people are aware that linguistic discrimination exists in our education system in the US I think part of that stems from the increased visibility of, of um, Native American history in secondary education, primary and secondary education. People know about the boarding school generation. They know that part of the Kill the Indian, Save the Man, you know, sort of program starts with erasing their language, right? Um, I think that, that that's a good example, but the kinds of examples we're focusing on in this paper are things that are much more subtle because we're trying to highlight sort of how discrimination is working in our daily lives in these these very very subtle and sort of under um, understudied and less l- less understood is that trying ways So yeah. So I think one of the really interesting examples comes from um, Venegas Rojas, et al., 2016, and they're talking about how outside of America, in places where people are learning English as a second language, or where English has been the medium of instruction in their secondary education, that lower proficiency students are really at a disadvantage for a number of reasons, but one of the main reasons is that these teachers drill students on accentless production. So this idea that you are a a language learner, and we want you to speak with a perfect accent, one that any standard speaker in America, Britain, or Australia would hear and not think twice about. Um... And that has very little to do with communicative competence. And it's something that really hinders um, – so, well, I, let me say, it, it, it sits on top of the sort of regular hindrances that an English language learner will run into in all other sorts of ways. I mean, it's very difficult to learn a language – a second language, a third language, a fifth language, it's very difficult to learn one as a working adult. And I think this this really starts to sort of peel back the burdens that some of these people who come here and we're like, you don't sound perfect. You know, you say stuff like that to people, and they've already really carried quite a long struggle to um, achieve a, the, the competency and fluency that they already have. So this is like a picture that's painted about what English language ideology does in the wider world, as opposed to what it does in American schools.
0: Yeah. I am because I think this is what podcast hosts are supposed to do. I'm now going to refer to previous episodes. Uh, (laughs) So some of those things have come up, like the episode about um, accents and what is an accent, right? You know, like, um, are there people? There are DJ? No people- right, right. There are no people that don't have any accents, right? So, but this idea that you must um, perform because that's really what you're doing, right? It, you must perform a certain way of speech in order to be accepted as, uh, you know, a certain level of speaker means that you are locking people out of a whole lot of different types of access and power, and you know the drilling is uh as people who listen to this know like I spent time in Korea and that 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 that's eh, you know maybe it was 10 years ago maybe it's changed but that was a big part of things there and it was like I continue to feel guilty about the fact that part of the reason I had that job is because I had that sort of accent um right and when you, you think have you seen the movie Parasite the recent movie Mm-mm. Oh, yes, you gotta got see that well it's getting, it's getting nominated for the award so it'll be around Um, Korean movie and well I don't want to give anything away gotta see the movie <laughs> but you know a lot of Korean movies are like this in that when the people speak English they do it with this really exaggerated American accent and, and but it's like it's um it's funny but it's also like it's performing a certain type of Status in a way, and it happens at a few really important times in that movies. But I'm not going to say anything else about it. The point being that uh, this whole uh, idea of what a good speaker of the language is is Im- you know imposed upon people through the education system, not just here but around the world. And I think a lot of people in this country, especially, and that is still where most of my listeners are, don't quite realize. That, that is happening everywhere and it's very detrimental mm-hmm. um i could go on about education forever but i will not so the next section of the paper is on linguistic discrimination and law and oh boy there's Hello, that boy <laughs> i mean when you once you once you put that subtitle there you know some stuff is going to come out but it is your article and so I shall allow you to be the person. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, can I say one more thing about education? Oh, sure, sure. Okay, so um, I really appreciate what you said about this thing this thing about how we find so maybe two things. So how we find like jobs abroad, which I know isn't an experience that sort of everyone um, in the US does. But it really has a lot to do with this idea that you might not speak like the perfect language for the area you're going into, but you speak an educated variety, an educated sounding variety of that language. Like your, you know, Korean that you learned here sounds more like the educated variety of Korean people would learn there. So it already has prestige when you come in, um, and I think, I think that kind of thing is really interesting. And it it really just continues to blow my mind about this accentless production that is drilled into people because people obviously speak with accents in all of these countries too. Everyone on the entire planet has one, right? So the idea that standard, people won't be able to understand you if you don't speak with this perfect, normative, default accent, which is usually falling out of someone's mouth who speaks a, some sort of regional accent um, from whatever country or area they're in. So this, this disconnect from awareness of what you actually produce and know and understand and not being able to sort of translate that into a different national context or being able to say, well, we understand this, but Americans won't. They just won't even hear you if you don't sound perfect. You know, it's 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 such a fallacy. It's like, have you ever had a conversation with someone who wasn't from the area you were from? Was it successful? Okay, well, then maybe it's not the biggest deal, right? But, um, and we see when programs, when we have programs that are very attentive to what the world around them looks like and these neighborhoods and, and where they're at, and they, they make something that's very responsive, it still ends up being the normative students that get the most benefit from it because they're the ones who learn a second language. They already had command over the prestige variety. And now they're going out into the world as like, oh sure, I'm bilingual. I guess I have like passing Spanish proficiency. It's like you don't, but it's still gonna get you a job it'll get you a job faster than it will get my English language learners. So I've
0: mentioned yeah. this, I've mentioned this story before on podcasts, podcast, but I just it comes up a lot what I think of I know that when I was learning French, which is very much one of those situations where I was like, Oh, you know be a special person with your extra languages I didn't, did not need to learn French um, but when I got to college um, there was like a classmate who I spoke to who got all of the words at, You know, sh- the words were all accurate but was making zero attempt to try to sound like a French person from France now I don't mean this I'm not judging her for doing so I just think it was different because we as Americans, or I should say as people from the United States, do not feel nearly as much social pressure to conform to the desired accent of other places. No one says, if I were to learn something in Korean or Chinese, like, well, if you don't sound exactly like (laughs) it, you know, then they're not not even going to, to hear what you're saying. No, like that. It it doesn't quite work in the other direction, and I just—I always think of her. Maybe that's me, but I just think it was very striking with that person that I knew from college. Um, Yeah, it's very—it's fascinating. So law, yeah.
1: So law, yeah. No, unproblematic. Completely, we can just skip it. Um, no. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, so law. Um. This might come as a surprise, but the legal system is entirely linguistically based. It is a fundamentally linguistic endeavor. Our justice system—we write laws in words. <laughs> I'm not trying to be receptive. It's just—it's shocking how literally one sentence is the difference between who is free and who is not, who is a citizen and who isn't, what's a crime and what isn't. Um, is the interpretation under uh, an existing statute, which is worded in a way that is, you know, either narrowly or widely interpreted. And uh, over time, which we also know language changes over time, but the law doesn't. It remains solid, crystallized for <laughs> centuries, as we've seen with our own constitution. So what does that mean? Um, when we sort of think about the ways in which someone sounds or the words that they use, like, outside of policy discussions. So, like, insert all policy discussions. Every single one of them is problematic. There are no exceptions. (laughs) When you start to think about a crime, these these problems about um, expectation of the most standardized and most prestigious language in the presence of the law in any form, so whatever form the law can take, a judge, you know the rules. It's you know the police. This kind of stuff can start to affect you even before the minute that you're charged with a crime. And one really um, still still quite saddening example of this is Sandra Bland. So Nicole Holiday and a handful of others uh, wrote about this on um, several blogs when it was happening in 2015. Um, But Sandra Bland was sort of pulled out of her car and then later arrested because of uh, of what was stated as a perceived impoliteness. And this impoliteness is something that follows the African-American language variety. People say that African-American speakers sound rude or angry or disrespectful when they're just talking. (laughs) And... I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that this kind of negative ideology helped end her life. Um, That she may not have been pulled out of her car if she was speaking a more standard variety or had chosen to in her sort of interaction with the police. Um, Yeah, like formality and respect – are sort of evaluated as a function of standard and non-standard language. So if you're speaking standard, it's because you care about what you're doing, you're attentive to the situation that you're in, you're being honest. If you're speaking non-standard language, all of those things are questionable. It's not like we automatically think you're the devil or a murderer. It's just that we're not, we don't question it in one situation and we do question it in another. And when it comes down to a jury of your peers, who most of the time aren't your peers, (laughs) um, a little bit of difference in the way that you speak really matters. Um, It matters so much that people get sent to jail because of how they sound. Um, they get sent to jail because our transcriptionists are terrible and do not understand the variation in American dialect. So an African-American person who's uh, interviewed as a witness, an alibi witness even, says something like, he be working, which doesn't mean he's at work right now. It means he has a job. And so if a standard English speaker is transcribing that, they will edit someone's language to fit standard English, and that obscures the truth. Um, it is a, a complex and um, it is an intimate failure, a miscarriage of justice in our system that just because I'm a speaker of English, I'm not allowed a translator, whereas we've seen people go to death row over things like this. Um, over miscommunications and transcription on appeal and such like that. You have to think, like, a judge on appeal, a judge only gets all of the notes that were collected before. So all of his assessment of the previous trial comes from just the court the court transcription. Um, and those transcriptions are prepared it, with an orientation towards the needs of the court and not the needs of a defendant. And if it's, you know, practice that's based on what we say and what and the words that we write then we need to make sure that they're accurate I don't I, yeah <laughs> it ruins me
0: I am um, going to do that thing that I do where I process what you're saying by connecting it to something that I experience and I hope when people listen to this they don't think that I'm being egotistical by doing so but think that part of my process is to do this so that other people, when they listen, can do the same thing. Just so you understand why I do these things. Um, <laughs> of course. Right. Well, some people might say, "Well, oh, he's just talking about himself. But I think about how the couple of times that I've personally been hassled by police and how I made, and this wasn't even a thing that I had to think about, I made absolutely sure how perfect everything I said was. You know, like for things where, like I was, you know, I was really mad, but I didn't want anything to happen to me or anybody I was with, you know. So it's just like, and I, you know, you get really ashamed to to realize what you're doing. Um, You hear me talking now. This is how I talk, but uh, I made very sure that there was nothing out of line because I did not want them to. I don't know if I was thinking about them perceiving me as impolite but I sure didn't want them to perceive me as anything other than incredibly deferential and it's uh, it's not a good feeling and I totally understand why you know <laughs> anyone who I- anyone doesn't always feel able to you know <sighs> prostrate themselves below such things it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's not fun but on the other hand you know, nothing has happened to me yet. So it's just to think about how that sort of thing has led to so many different people's lives either being irreparably damaged or ended. Um, and it's just because they're speaking in a way that people think is unbecoming of humans or something like that. I don't know. Um, I also think right. of, of um, you know, Sammy Sosa. Oh, yeah. Baseball player. Um,
1: Sorry, I love baseball. I got like way more excited than I should. I was like, "Yes, oh my god, I do!"
0: <laughs> so he, uh, well, there's a whole bunch of stuff going. I don't know if you've seen him in the last few years. Um, you, when when we get off the phone, you know, Google him. He's doing some skin lightening stuff. I don't know what's going on, but uh, before all of that, when he was, I don't remember if he was still active or he was had just retired. He was rumored to have used steroids, like many people. Um, he it, it seems likely that he did, because everybody did. Anyway, they brought people to testify before Congress, because they were very mad about the, the, the game being sullied. Uh, and they, you know, the, all the people testified, and they said they did or they didn't do it or whatever. And his reputation got ruined because they did not give him a translator and he spoke i can't remember whether he refused to speak in english because he wasn't comfortable and therefore people didn't trust him or he spoke in english and did it haltingly i can't remember i don't want to say the wrong thing it was one of the two things but let me tell you the main one of the main reasons he didn't get he hasn't gotten into the hall of fame is because of that testimony ruining his reputation. Now, that's not the same as going to jail, but it's related to the law and it changed the person's life in a huge way, you know? <laughs> you, know you know, not getting in the Hall of Fame, okay, he'll probably be okay. But I remember that being a really big deal because it there are many people who have done or not done those things and it didn't have the same impact on them. That's just something I remember. Yeah, you illust-
1: that, that illustrates a really important point. Like, we're talking about the law, so we're thinking about, like, police and the courts and things like that, but this really extends to authoritative bodies in general. Um, anyone who is sort of writing rules and guidelines that people then need to ascribe to and operate under. And so sports, which is, you know, my other life with this machine learning, is it's a microcosm of these things. I think... Um, if you look at Hall of Famers, if you look at people um, who sort of make it into these upper echelons, very few, very few of them are non-standard speakers. Um, The people who get elevated and people who have interviews and sort of stories written about them, it's, it's, it's a robust pattern. And authoritative bodies who are making decisions, Especially ones that call into question a person's character. These these sorts of things. <laughs> <laughs> these sorts stopping. of things go a long way. Um, a long way towards us deciding how we feel about them. Um, sort of in any context. Your your story about um being like super proper with police officers. I think about that of being. Like, when I was younger, someone would say something, like a teacher would say something to you, and you'd be like, no, I didn't do that, I did this, or my mom told me not to do that, so I'm not going to, you know, and they'd be like, don't give me attitude. You know, that used to be the word, attitude, attitude. They say it, like, all the time, and it's very much the thing of, like, I was just speaking. I wasn't talking back to you or questioning your authority. I was just making a statement, um, and so I think that's definitely part of this is sort of any time a non-standard speaker but more likely you know more often than not a person of color or a woman sort of starts to speak up for themselves if they're not doing it in perfect English we don't trust them so (laughs) and it's shocking
0: the um, to talk about I don't want to go down a whole baseball thing but I really could Um, the thing I didn't I didn't mean to just assume we didn't know anything Baseball or anything. I just, I don't know. Not everybody knows who Sammy Sosa is anymore. But um, because he didn't make the Hall of Fame. The thing is.
1: I am old enough to remember Sammy Sosa when he was still a hero. Yeah. So yeah.
0: <laughs> but the, um, the, one of the big problems is that the ones you said that the people who make to the upper echelons are usually not non standard speakers. The ones who do make it to the upper echelons and are non standard speakers or are not particularly proficient or whatever ties into what we've talked about with the whole talk back and the whole their version of respect, which is really obedience. They are the most never stir the boat people you will ever meet. If you don't stir the boat at all, then you can be more of a non standard speaker and rise, right? If you support you know these things because if you think about it, who who was the first baseball player to get 100% make the Hall of Fame unanimously? Is Mariano Rivera last year, right? Mariana Rivera never stirred the boat in any way, <laughs> it's like in any way whatsoever, right? So that's the person. You know, and Mariana Rivera is my favorite player, so I'm just saying. But that's <laughs> the type of person that we're talking about. Mariana Rivera, who's you know does certainly speak English just fine, but he's not a standard speaker right and that to the point where no one in history had gotten 100% that what they respected more than anything else and they won't admit it is the fact that he was not from the mainstream but kept his head down that is the most deserving of respect thing that a person outside the mainstream can do Outside of the, to get right. to our point, linguistic mainstream. So I could go on and on about that, but I will not. Hey, there's
1: very much in sports especially or just uh, these, like, fames or cults of, cult of personality around people. It's like, mm-hmm, be grateful.
0: <laughs> yes. Yes.
1: Be grateful we let you play. <laughs> Thanks.
0: And um, segue, you know, maybe be, gr- yeah. be grateful that we allowed you to live in this neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> Look at, that segue. Yeah,
1: that's Look at a, that segue. It's a that was excellent. It's a <laughs> it's a fun one. I um there's so much to say about the housing market. I so since this paper has come out, I have finished the research that is cited in it. And I guess what I can say generally about the phenomenon as linguistic profiling, which is, like, the idea of racial profiling is you see a person, their skin is a certain color, and that leads you to believe certain things about them, that they're dangerous, right? Um, this is the same thing, except you're hearing someone. So I hear a black voice, and I think different things about it. I hear a southern voice, and I think different things about it. Um, so what I was able to do was sort of look at those differing attitudinal impressions. So what what ideologies are people bringing to bear when they hear a voice? And how does that affect access in the housing market? And it seems like that if someone is calling an area that is demographically matched, so for example, in the white working class neighborhood, the southern speaker does better than the other speakers um and that neighbor that demographic match of a white indexed voice in a white area with all the associations that go along with southerness and working classness sort of in combination makes that person sound more like home right i mean it's not it sounds like when I say this kind of thing and they do better, that it's like white people are like, oh, you're a white person. I definitely want you to live here. But it's not that intentional. It's not that nefarious. This goes back to you know the original points of the article of like we're doing, we're doing all of these discrimination tasks all at the same time. It's happening mostly unconsciously and simultaneously. So I, you speak for one second, and I've already decided who I think you are. I can change my mind, but if I never meet you and we're going to have a five minute to 10 minute conversation on the phone, that first impression is probably all that I need to decide if I think you're worth my time or would fit well into my space. Um, that's the decision I'm trying to make when I'm on the phone with you anyway as a realtor. So it's very much of, um, it is this thing about, like, personal biases influence these conversations and influence outcomes for people in general. And that equity simply isn't present. And when I say personal biases, I, again, don't mean that that's an neg- inherently negative thing. Like People use the word bias, and they think that it means just a bad thing, right? But I'm from Tennessee, and I love people who sound like home. <laughs> that I am biased towards <laughs> enjoying a Southern accent more than others. Um, just because it, you know, I can, I can smell my mother's kitchen. You know, <laughs> like it's, it's very much of that kind of thing, and that, that's why people like being around people who sound like them, right? Because there's, there's something about there's, there's kinship in a voice. That, that, that's not inherently negative. It just has disparate outcomes. Um, the other study that we talk about. Sorry to just keep going, but the – is, I think, really very well representative of how these things work um, in a wider sort of community-level way. Jessie Greaser, her dissertation – she's at the University of Tennessee now, but um, her dissertation is on a neighborhood in Washington, D.C., and so what I'm looking at in my work is we have redlining, we have this, we have that. How is segregation still working today? And what are people who are looking for homes right now sort of experiencing? What Jesse is looking at is this is a black neighborhood that has existed in this space for years, for 50 years, 85 years. What are the people that live here experiencing how have they responded to all these other changes, white flight, um, you know, uh, gentrification, black upward mobility, all these things that ha- the black community in D.C. has experienced? What, does their, what do their voices say that index those experiences? So what does it mean to, li- to find a place to live? But then what does it mean to live in that place? and sort of stay there and be a member of a community as it changes around you and the ways in which that affects your language. So she really brings evidence that there are these, like, hyper-local sort of ways of knowing and being, and these are the kinds of communities that people are trying to preserve that in some circumstances they might be like, maybe this other person, this standard speaker, is not a great fit for my, you know, hard scrabble and, you know, illustrious sort of neighborhood that we've all tried to like cobble together and live here for years while everything else kind of swirled around us. Um, that's not inherently negative either, but it's definitely something where you're trying to get people you, you want you want we want our neighborhood to be our neighborhood.
0: I mean I think that makes sense. I I um I've always had an interesting thought about in neighborhoods you know i live in new york and i've got all that going on um but, really <laughs> uh, but it's, it's interesting because i i grew up in brooklyn and where i lived was sort of this weird mix of like uh, italian jewish and black so you know, I guess the upper middle class-ish area. But if you went two blocks in one direction, it was West Indian black, and if you went two blocks in the other direction, it was much more Jewish. And if you, I think that's it. You could, there's only so many directions. But <laughs> like, <laughs> it was like just sort of this interesting little spot in between. And then like on my block, you had pretty much all of those groups represented, and that was interesting. However, if you go back there now, it has hipster and I would like to, to, to see what the neighborhood is like, linguistically especially, because there were a lot of languages there when I grew up, and I doubt that there are <coughs> nearly as many languages as there are now. I mean, near, you know what I mean? There are nearly as many languages now as there were then, and sure. I expect that a lot of the little things, like the dollar vans and stuff like that, are probably not... A big deal there anymore, so I don't know, and now I live in Queens and, you know, everyone's being pushed out of here, so uh, <laughs> I'm just sort of watch, and I can, like, see the neighborhoods from my window, you know, watching things change, and it's just sort of sad to look at. Um,
1: one, of, um, one of my favorite things to do <laughs> this is so nerdy, oh my god, is um, if you, like, Google Earth like an area that's very linguistically diverse. So New York City is perfect for that. And you just do like kind of a small linguistic landscape activity. I would just drop a pin somewhere and sort of look around and just see what, what variety of languages you can see on signage in an area. This is a great thing to do, to drop the pin in, you know, like Eastern Europe, like in former Yugoslavia. Just anywhere in that entire block, you're going to have just, Five, six, seven languages in one block on the signs in contact, and I think those things are so interesting. Um, you would think that oh well, in we all in areas all have a bunch of English speakers, there won't be variety on signs. But I've been hard pressed to actually find an example of an area where this doesn't work. <laughs> so it's um, this isn't directly about housing, but I think it's it's very interesting uh, the links between the way we sound and the places that we make our home and, and how we sort of live and work and have our being there, like which grocery store we go to and hairdresser and things like that. I think that these are cultural enclaves, but they're also linguistic enclaves. It's very ties, I think, well into that, that community of practice idea of like you have people that you are around. You have ways of building knowledge together, and that sort of shapes how you sound. Um, so who you are, really?
0: <laughs> I have two quick points to make out of this, I and mean, then I have to I have to move to the healthcare thing before we end. Um, the first okay. point is that when I started running long distances about six years ago, I lived in Manhattan, so I didn't really do anything interesting. I went up and down to the East side. but then when I moved to Queens in 2014, I started running all over Queens and Brooklyn, and like I had been to most of these places, but I hadn't connected the neighborhoods like on foot I would get on the subway go up and be in a new place and when I was running I would see how the neighborhoods fit together and like molded and didn't mold and that was really cool so that's one thing I like about running is seeing how things connect and don't connect in, in interesting ways and linguistically is a lot of it was, was one of those ways and the second thing I'm going to say is have you ever played the game GeoGuessr Mm-mm. yeah you can do the whole world, but it's too broad to be useful. You can also do GeoGuessr, and they have, like, United States, New York, Los Angeles. Basically, you, um, they, they give you a Google Earth picture, and you're supposed to guess where you are in the world.
1: Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. I
0: mean, but, like, you can spin it around, and you can look and see what language is being spoken, right, on the street signs. You know, you might not, there might not be a street sign. It's usually a highway or something. And then you can see, okay, that's that's a two yellow lines. That's the United States. Or if you're in Europe, you say, well, that's a white line. Or if you're in Asia, you know, it's a whole bunch of stuff. Or we say, what's the what's the landscape? It's very cool. That sounds like so much fun. <laughs> yeah. And then, like, I do it from New York, and, like, then it's cheating because then it's like, it's a grid, right? It says 49th Street. you are like, well, I think I'm on 49th Street. But <laughs> it's, it's a little easy if you do that. All right, and the last section of the last part of the paper is on linguistic discrimination in healthcare. care. Some of this I think people are aware of because they know about people not getting seen and stuff like that. But some of all the right. insights that you all, and by you all I mean you, since as you say, you did write most of this part of the article, um, brought to it were things that not everybody knows. So if you want to tell us a little bit before everyone... It's like, wow, Justin, you, you kept people on the phone for a long time tonight, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> tell us a little bit about the linguistic discrimination in healthcare.
1: Okay, yeah, so I do have to give a shout out to Rachel Weisler, who definitely did most of the work on this particular section. Um, but the um, co author, she's amazing. the I think so. One of the first things that I ever learned about, like, linguistic justice was a conversation about linguistics and healthcare. care. And honestly, it's not hard to imagine. I mean, yes, people not getting appointments, but this is an idea of, I don't understand what you're saying, and I give you an imprecise diagnosis. So I might kill you. I might make your situation worse. I might not help you at all, right? Um, that can be a problem based on the languages used. So globally, most hospitals are in areas where the people in the hospital speak a language that the people in the community do not speak. So that is an entire language difference, not a dialectal one, which is a lot of what we've been talking about already. Um, but it's, it it can be even finer than that. It can be something like, just the sort of rules of discourse. Like, if I am a grandma and I come in with, like, my son and my grandkids, like, we're all going to go in as a family, but I'm the patient. But you can't, I'm not supposed to talk directly to the doctor. My male children and, and you know, grandchildren are supposed to be the people that have an interaction for me. So if a doctor is talking directly to me or I'm alone and I don't have the other people there who are supposed to speak for me, I can't talk to you. I, it's, it's not part of my culture. It's not a conversation that I have any sort of pattern to engage with. Um, and so, yeah, these things become sort of such a, prob- uh, such a problem on a doctor's end when they're not able to communicate with their patient. And this isn't, I mean, healthcare professionals have myriad pressures and challenges um this is something that is beyond any individual or individual policy but really it comes down to are people getting the right diagnoses and we have a large uh study this hessen and pickler um showing no they aren't (laughs) and uh shock it's affects women more than this. Um, Because part of the reason is things that happen to women regularly, like pregnancy, they can be very dangerous if not, you know, handled well. Um, Maternal mortality rates are very high in lots of places. And, um, And there's this other side of it where people can't interpret the instructions that they're given or the diagnosis they're given. So somebody comes in, palpates, you know, places on your body, writes some stuff down on a chart. Some other person comes in and they're like, you have bursitis. The person doesn't know that that's just like fluid, you know, in a joint or something. They, they have no idea what they have. They just sit there, they listen, maybe walk to the pharmacy and can't read their instructions. Um, I don't think that the burden should be placed on the patient, especially someone who's suffering some sort of illness or malady to have to interpret for themselves or go out somewhere else or, God forbid, pay because there are absolutely, you know, people who will take your money to translate your, your prescription information um, uh, to get care. So it is it is a problem, and it's a problem that, unfortunately, people, people lose their lives and become very sick over or avoid, you know, Regular care, preventative care, lifetime health is something that just doesn't happen for people because they don't feel like they'll be treated equitably or they're afraid that they won't understand when they go into a hospital or a doctor's office. So it's it, it's a problem.
0: <laughs> Pardon me. I do think that there are certain people who would never, like, admit these things to themselves, and I don't even mean just in the United States, but I mean around the world, because there's oppression in every country, that would like to seem like they're helping people by building a hospital there, and certainly you are helping some people, but are, they have things, I'm now quoting myself, the altruistic shield, where basically they think, I'm doing a thing for people, so don't you dare tell me that what I'm doing is oppressing people. Um, (laughs) So it's just sort of like, and you see this in all of these fields, right? You see, well, I'm running uh, affordable housing, so how dare you tell me that what I'm doing is discriminatory? Or... I'm running a nonprofit that does education for people. So how dare you tell, you know, that sort of thing. It happens a lot in all of these fields. Um, To bring it back to even the other thing, I'm, you know, doing workforce development, right? Uh, I'm trying to help people. So how dare you tell me I need to do better? Or in law, well, I do nonprofit law. How dare you tell? You know, I feel like this attitude, it's just so pervasive because what you're saying is really important. And you're not even saying these people are being malicious. But to point these things out to a certain group of people, they're just going to get so defensive that they just clam up and they don't want to hear it. So the article and this interview is going to conclude with the idea of, like, you do give a couple of suggestions for how linguists can help to resolve these issues.
1: Yeah. Um, you said a lot
0: of things there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I really, yeah, I mean, it's, well, it's, it's a lot. I mean, it's too, it, it's, a, it's a depressing article because we kind of just walk through a lot of people's pain. But I think that education is crucial. Yeah, so a lot of the, a lot of, I think, the issues that we see can really be solved through education. And honestly, I don't think that it's something that will take that long. We conclude the article by saying that linguists, in general, are poised to be our privilege to have expertise on language. Because it's something that is very very widely ignored in common curriculum, we, we really have a gift to understand how our cognition works and what communication is. And we have a responsibility to teach and frame um, our conversations around the fallacy of standard language and the idea that an ideal or native speaker is just that. It's an idea. It's not, it's not something. And that anyone who produces a grammar produces a good grammar, that language structure is. And we interpret it on top of that, but that's, it's not, there's no inherent badness or goodness there. Um, that, that, that's not a lot of goals, right? That's just three things that I would like the whole world to know about language, and I feel like maybe we would do a little bit better. Um, so, I, I, this is something every linguist can do, too, I think. Like, you can be a syntactician and still tell people that linguistic discrimination exists. Um.
0: Well, I think I'm just going to leave it at that, so... Okay. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to me tonight, Kelly. And um, I am going to make sure that the people who listen to this really hear what you have to say because it's really important and really well said.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for doing this podcast, doing this work.
0: Oh, well, I um, I just wanted to make some sort of contribution to the field, and hopefully I'm able to do so.
1: Yeah. YAY!